With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Ari Gilberg. Glad to be back, John. It's been a wild day. Yeah, it's been quite the day for, uh, for Ari, myself, and various others who cover college football. I know, um, you know most of the site, at least at current, we're recording it in the evening, uh, is focused in on basketball. We are paying attention to that. We are paying attention to football first, and that means uh, National Signing Day uh, was upon us today. Ari, uh, you were up on East Coast time uh, bright and early. Uh, was there anything that you felt in, in the early hours of National Signing Day that had you either at ease or, or had you a little nervous about things? I'm not sure if it's at ease or nervous. I'm more so surprised that the first signee to roll in was actually Tommy DeVito. Uh, we all knew that he was going to make his show at roughly 35 Eastern time on ESPN. So personally, I was shocked when he was the first one to sign. Kind of just goes to show that these shows later in the afternoon by these recruits are not actually anything. It's just a show to put on for the fans and the friends and family. Most of them have already signed their nationalists or 10 early in the morning. True. And I, I guess for me, I was just surprised that, as you know, I know we've both done this a couple times at least. Um, I, I was surprised that everybody was locked in so early. I mean, the whole class was locked in by 10 on the dot once uh, oh, Jonathan Kingsley slash Kingsley Jonathan uh, <laughs> made his announcement at, a, at 10 a.m. Eastern. And that was the entire class. Uh, yeah, so considering all the kids that had, you know, different timing and Twitter announcements set up and all these things, that was definitely uh, definitely something I wasn't expecting. Obviously, a lot of it's for show, but at the same time, you would think there was a little more coordination between them and the school. But nonetheless, um, a fun morning for SU fans to see the entire class, uh, save one, um, end up in the door in the first three hours. And then obviously, we got the uh, the very late... Uh, junior college edition in uh, McKelty Williams. Ari, you did the write-up on this late Wednesday. Do you want to give us a quick rundown on him? I know I've read a little bit, but um, there's plenty of fans that probably have not to this point um, and might want a little bit of a, a crash course on who he is and how he got here. Uh, sure. McKelty Williams was actually a pretty uh, highly sought-after recruit back in high school. He's uh, originally a class of 2015 and committed to uh, Notre Dame. He went there for a year, didn't play at all. He 
not exactly sure the reason for transferring. Maybe it was frustration over playing time, but he eventually left the Irish, uh, went to community college, played admirably well, but I guess he kind of fell off the radar in terms of recruiting services. He was only the eighth or ninth uh, safety in this Jugo class. And I believe it was only Syracuse and Cincinnati to actually offer him a scholarship. Keep in mind, this is only two years after he was one of the, he was a four-star safety and one of the most highly sought-after defensive backs. So in my eyes, Syracuse probably just got a steal. I mean, this is a guy who's clearly talented, played great. He still put up 93 tackles last season, albeit it was for community college. But he can definitely work his way into defensive backs rotation. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point there with, uh, with Juco guys. I mean, obviously we have several um, this year. Do you think that it's indicative of anything in terms of Dino Baber's strategy um, or just happens to be how the cards fell this year? I mean, obviously you're going to focus in on Juco's when you need uh, a quick injection of depth and some experience um, without you know having the time to necessarily build you know three- and four-year um projects at least for me i see this a little bit as babers seeing the schedule in front of them and and trying to get out ahead of uh which should be an incredibly difficult slate uh with i don't know what is it 11 different bowl teams on it yeah the not the number one strength of schedule syracuse is the hardest schedule in all of college football next season so buckle up orange fans celebrate but I definitely... people that want difficult schedules <laughs> celebrate yeah <laughs> but i definitely agree with you i think Dino recognizes the roster he had when he took over from former coach Scott Schaefer was extremely young. Then he lost a couple of guys who transferred out, and there's just so many holes you need to fill, and you just can't fill all of them with recruiting classes because a lot of these guys are they're 18, 19 years old. They're not ready to go against LSU and Clemson. So I think he just kind of recognized that problem, and I think solved it admirably well with the number of talented Juco players. These are a lot of guys that can contribute right away on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I mean, and well, why don't we go into a few of those? Um, obviously, we talked about Williams already. Uh, the really big name, other than Williams at this point, um, is probably Javian Pierce. Um, no, sorry, Ravian Pierce. That is my fault. It's been a very long day for myself and Ari. <laughs> uh, Pierce is a tight end. We didn't use a lot of the tight end position last year. Um I think we had less than 10 combined catches from all the tight ends. We have zero returning tight ends this year, so it was an area of need. That's why we brought in uh, two on this cycle. Uh, Pierce, however, seems like the type of guy who fits the mold we were looking at for maybe um, an Adley Anoisi um, or perhaps a Jamal Custis before he got injured last year. You know, he's, he's fast, he's big, but he's not so big that you know, he's going to be bogged down by the speed of this offense. He's 6'4", he's 225, he's going to be able to be physical. And we could see a very different look for for a five-wide set this year than we did last year when it was, you know, largely um, your same basic four and then a rotation of, you know, Butler, Cornelius, uh, Sean Riley, and some others uh, who played in to, to an, you know, an additional slot role. Um, this, on the other hand... I feel like it gives us a much better option, um, you know, close to the goal line, especially where Syracuse once again struggled. Oh, 100%. I mean, Pierce is 6'4", 225 pounds. That's a big target, especially in the red zone. As you just mentioned, there was a number of times Syracuse had to set up with field goals because they just couldn't convert. And this is a, Pierce is a guy who's 
getting LSU, Mississippi State, our big Power Five schools. While I know a lot of fans and other reporters have repeated said Dino Baber's offense doesn't really feature the tight end. Cam McPherson finished last season with just five receptions for 34 yards, but he's never had a player of Pierce's caliber. I think it's actually why I mentioned him as the one I believe who's going to contribute the most next season in our roundtable recap post. I mean, arguably him or it's him or Tommy DeVito are the most highly rated players. So just because your offense may not feature the tight end position, you're going to mold that offense around the talent you have. And Dino's done that in other ways. I feel like he'll definitely make sure he uses his talented tight end. Yeah, I definitely buy that. Um, I know we're going to talk depth chart next week, um, kind of in a couple of posts, just to tease out some content that we're looking at. Um, now that all these players are, are official, we can start looking at you know who's going to play next year, who might not, who might redshirt. Um, so another question I had kind of going into the offseason and now going into spring practice um, who plays running back next year? Because obviously there's now um, there's four scholarship running backs, plus we have a, a potential fullback um, on the roster, and Chris Elmore, who kind of came in as a defensive tackle um, fullback mix. I mean, if Elmore can actually play the position, and it seems like he does have enough experience doing it, and Baber seems to buy into him playing it. I mean, this is a guy who's 5'11", 278, he's a little bit of a bowling ball build. Um, and he's a guy that if he's not going to play on the defensive end right now and he has experience carrying the ball, uh, this could be the kind of savior that we were looking for last year after Joel Shaw never made it to campus. Yeah, he would definitely be a type of goal line back. I think for the most part, though, he'll kind of be featured as the H-back and more of a blocking role, especially because I don't have it right now, but I know his 40-yard time isn't the greatest. I mean, he's also he's got a lot of weight there, so it depends whether he's supposed to, I'm not sure exactly what Dino wants, if he wants to feature more as an H-back or more as a defensive tackle. If he goes H-back, I think Elmore's going to need to lose a little bit that way because he needs to get some sort of speed. You can't just be that big guy when, if you make it past that first hole, you need some speed to then get around the linebackers, get past defensive backs. I think he would definitely be using uh, more goal line situations. But in terms of starting running backs, John, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, at this point last year, we all thought Jordan Fredericks was going to be the main guy for the 2016 season, and he just fell off the radar and fell off the depth chart. So I'm not sure if, I'm not sure what you're thinking. Is it going to be Dante Strickland again? Is it going to be Mark Kenzie Pierre or Alan Schritzinger? You also still have Mo Neal, who kind of has that lightning-in-a-bottle type of speed, but not really the size. So honestly, it's a, I think it's a crapshoot. I'm not sure what your mind's at right now. Uh, for me, to be honest, um, and this is something I've been pushing for a while on social media and the comments section, um, I think that at least one of Strickland and Neil get pushed out to, uh, to the slot position. I think in particular, Strickland seems like a great candidate for that. You saw a little bit of it at the end of the year. He was catching more passes out of the backfield, um, and he was doing a nice job with it. He did a nice job with it as a freshman as well. Um, so I see him as a prime candidate for that uh, role. I think uh, Stritzinger seems like the type of, and Pierre, to be honest, but especially probably Pierre, seem like the type of guys who can put on a little bit of weight and be a little more bruising. Uh, Pierre's already kind of hanging around 
I think, what is it, 210? Yeah, I think he's around like 210, 215 right now. Yeah, if he's around 210, 215 right now, and he can bump it up to 225, I mean, and he's still got that speed, and he's running around at 4.5 or, or so, like, that's the type of guy that's invaluable in an offense like this um, that we just kind of lacked last year. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, Mo Neal and Dante Strickland are, are skilled athletes, and they're guys that are going to be heavy contributors into this offense the next couple of years, but they weren't guys that were necessarily built to run between the tackles the way that they were tasked to over and over again. Um, I mean, I'm like 5'10", 170, and, and neither of them were, were much bigger than me. I think Neal's actually smaller than both of those measurements. <laughs> so, uh, and, and knowing what I would be able to do against, you know, ACC defensive lines, um, I, I could only imagine uh, the, the, the problems that they faced. I mean, you, you saw some glimmers of, of things. Strickland would have a nice game here and there. Neal would have a couple you know, really nice breakout runs just because he's a shifty guy between the tackles. But by and large, these were guys that were not meant to run this type of offense, at least not without, you know, a, a bruiser in front of them. Again, like I mentioned before, Joel Shaw was that guy. And, and when he didn't make it to campus, uh, they were kind of SOL. Uh, we'll see if Gus Edwards ends up making it to campus, uh, the transfer from Miami, who would be able to play right away. Um, but he'd be a guy to be able to fill that role if he doesn't make it. Um, then we might see a little bit more of Elmore than just the goal line, although I think goal line is going to be his primary role if he's a ball carrier. Um, and then we'll probably see a hefty dose of, I think, Pierre and Stritzinger as, as Strickland moves um, probably into the spot formally occupied by Brisley Esteem. The big question, though, is even if you do have all those guys and they are able to quickly understand the system and hit the weight room and get that weight up is is there even going to be a decent old line blocking for them we saw just how honestly putrid that old line was for in large parts last season while they also did get hit with a number of injuries it just seemed they could never really get anything going i think syracuse finished around like 115 in yards per carry it was like 115 120 it was all the way at the bottom and I mean, so right. real uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to fix, I think, in general. The offensive line is also just its own monster that needs to be addressed. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of progress here as so many players got to get playing time last year after being injured that we could see a nice spike um, or at least, a, I think, an improvement from the bottom 10 to 15 to maybe 90th to 80th could actually make a big difference. That 100% agreed there. And Syracuse also does have a couple good O-line prospects come in, although I doubt any of them are really going to be seeing much playing time as true freshmen. And uh, Dakota Davis and Patrick Davis. Yeah, I think both of them, whatever you want to call them, the Davis twins, or I, that's fine with me. Um, I think that they're guys that, that are going to be great contributors down the road. Uh, I think that Syracuse actually has some great kind of offensive line depth and rotation right now. I know I said it last year, too, going into the season, and that depth was tested. But the fact that so many guys had to get thrown into the fire allowed for Syracuse to really get game minutes um, to a bunch of guys who were going to be pieces down the road. Um, the fact that we're still able to, to keep a lot of these red shirts intact uh, with all that happening, I think, is also a great sign. Again, it doesn't help in the, in the short term. It doesn't help us in-game, 
when you know inexperienced offensive linemen are jumping off sides and getting blown up by bigger uh, defensive tackles. But um, it does help down the road, and that and that that's against the saving grace that we need to bank on. That is true, and it also did list uh, see we did see uh, some flashes from the O line. I think my personal favorite was uh, center Colin Byrne, who got thrust in there, and honestly, it was probably one of the best unblocking offensive linemen I thought Syracuse had last season. Oh, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, I think that Byrne, Byrne's contribution was, was very underrated, and when he got injured as well, uh, briefly, uh, you, you saw that the type of role that he was able to play and that he was able to, to contribute. Um, it, it was underrated. It was unheralded. Um, just it's one of those things where he was put in a position that he didn't need to be, uh, or at least shouldn't have needed to be, um, and, and he performed about as well as you could have asked him to. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. And, and I, again, I brought this up going into last year. It'll be interesting to see how the that that the well-regarded you know offensive line class of 2015 starts to adapt to this new offense. As it seems like so far, all the guys are in it for the long haul. No one's transferred. Everyone's kind of bought in, and you've already seen most of these guys get playing time um, as you know redshirt freshmen last year. Of course, now let's see how they hold up against the toughest schedule in football would definitely be a huge challenge for them, even with the experience they got last season, which in itself was also a very difficult schedule. Yeah, and I think that the, the schedule, and this is something that, that you know, Dan and I have everything else. It's, the schedule is never going to help us out. And, and, and I'll be honest, like, my harping this year is more just on the LSU game than anything else, um, because obviously everything else is handed to us by the ACC, um, I don't think you should necessarily be going out to play Middle, Middle Tennessee, who you know is a program that plays a similar style of football, and our style of football, even with our you know better athletes, isn't necessarily an advantage. Um, but every yeah, everybody else, uh, you know, this is just kind of what the ACC brought us. And I had you know some conversations with people earlier in the week about this in the comments, and it was it was just making the point that like we have plenty of opportunities for statement wins. We're facing three and four. Um, you know, ranked teams a year now um, on the schedule. Why, why on earth would we add a fifth if we don't need to? Um, there's still fans that, that, that think it's the 1980s and want to play Nebraska and want to play Oklahoma and everybody else on earth. And those wins are great when they happen, but those wins are few and far between. They're special because they don't happen all the time. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the point lost on what seems like a lot of people especially when you're a rebuilding team trying to basically restart the program with entirely new identity, you schedule those easy wins. They may help you to schedule. They may look like cupcake wins. But if you're trying to get those wins and then make a bowl game, and then bowl games we saw this past season with Wake Forest and Boston College, like anything can happen, that's how you rebuild that reputation. You don't want to go off and schedule LSU, Alabama, the toughest teams in college football, and get blown out, because that's just going to look terrible for your program to these recruits that you're trying to bring in. 100%. Yeah. Like I, I, it was funny, too, because, like, and this isn't to, to hate on the recruits, but I did see a lot of recruits and a lot of guys who are currently <laughs> in the program getting very, like, excited about the fact that they were facing a really tough schedule. Like, that all sounds great right now, but, like... It's not as fun if you're losing 57 nothing. It's not as fun if you're losing on national TV. And it's not as fun if you're not, being, you're not able to, to replenish the recruiting ranks as a result. 
Um, it's just a word of caution. It's it's not it's not hating for for the sake of it. It's just a word of caution that those things might sound positive now, and they're going to sound somewhat positive. I mean, I know I'm going to go to the LSU game in Baton Rouge, and it's going to sound somewhat positive then too. But there is a price to pay, and it's we've seen it over the last decade and change for playing these games and stacking up losses when you already have plenty on the schedule. Yep, another of those guys who are just tweeting wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I'm sure if you asked a lot of the Syracuse players after that blowout loss to Clemson or after a number of losses to Louisville or LSU over the years, if they would have it any other way, I'm sure they would have. There's just a number of those big-time games where Syracuse just gets blown out, and, and there's just no point. You're not at that caliber, at that level, where you should be... One, so the ACC games, obviously, it's out of their realm. They can't schedule those, but there's no need to schedule LSU. It's, to me, it just seems inconceivable. 100%. Um, let's see what else we got. Ari, is there is there one recruit, I know we asked this question in the recap that you and I did, is there one recruit that's kind of under the radar right now that you think could really kind of jump up and be a, a huge contributor? I mean, I think I said it too, and I think you kind of said before that there's a number of recruits you probably pick out of. I guess if I just had to pick one who I think has the potential to blow up, I'd say it's wide receiver Cameron Jordan. Just based purely on your on his size alone, he's 6'4", about 190 pounds. Obviously, the weight, he needs to bulk up. But you can't teach size. And at 6'4", he's going to be one of those big-time red zone targets. And with Ahmed Atal at the Falls, obviously, you don't want to compare him, but he does have similar, similar measurables. Of course, he needs to hit the weight room. We need to see how he, if he can master route running in Dino Baber's offense. Does he have the stamina? There's obviously there's a number of questions, but based purely on size, I think he could conceivably have a a big year. Even even as a freshman, he may not put up edit tower stats because obviously he wouldn't. But I think around like 400 receiving yards isn't out of the question. Yeah, I buy it. Uh, I, I think in general, all these receivers could see the field. Uh, you saw last year that, you know, I mean, Sean Riley saw the field in bits and pieces, mostly on special teams, but he was a, a part of the offense. Um, I think Devin Butler would have seen the field more if he hadn't gotten injured mid-year. Um, all these guys coming in, Thompson Bishop, uh, Nike Johnson, who else is on here? Cameron Jordan, obviously. I know I mentioned him a little bit um, in my preview in Sherrod Johnson. I think Jordan's an interesting case because um, there's some evaluators that aren't sure what to think of his resume given like the competition on Long Island. I know I grew up, you know, like basically a high school away from uh, where he went. And the competition at that part of Long Island really isn't great. But at the same time, like when you see his tape, you know when a kid is getting by on, you know, natural ability, when he's getting by on the inferiority of opponents. And, you know, Jordan, like you said, like I said, at 6'4", 187, you add another 20 pounds to that, and suddenly he's a force to be reckoned with. I think that, you know, going the Edotawo mold with most of these guys, um, obviously, you know, we went about 2-2 two and two in terms of, um, you know, inside receivers and outside receivers in the traditional Syracuse offense. Um there's there's just a lot to like about these guys, and even if they don't see the field much this year, um, 
something tells me that you'll you'll see the benefits of them, even if it's just helping the defensive backs get better um, in, in practice, and just playing against guys who are who are much probably more natural fits. And I don't think that makes them better than Eric Phillips or Steve Ishmael. I just think it it makes them maybe better fits for what Dino Babers wants to do long term. Right, and it makes sense. I mean, Babers took over a team where all these players were recruited for a completely other system. So even if these guys may not be the most highly sought after or highly touted recruits, they're recruits that fit what Babers is going to do here at Syracuse. You had those big six foot four, six foot three, six foot two wide receivers who are going to be great red zone targets, and you have a lot of those guys like Nakeem Johnson, who's five foot nine but runs like a four four forty or dash. I mean, he's also a kind of a similar mold like a Bristley team. He's the prototypical slot receiver who can line up inside and is perfect for that Dino Babers high-powered offense. Too, too true. Um, there's a quick diversion into halftime. Um, Ari, I know we were talking earlier, and you haven't really drank a ton of great beer. That's fine. <laughs> I am, I am, I'm happy to take the reins for everybody I mean, if you here. Have, I mean, I, I, I can make a hot take or I can make Keystone and Natty Light are pretty high-quality beers as a broke college student. You, you will not make that argument on this show. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you that right away. <laughs> that said, I drank plenty of Keystone. I refused Natty uh, back in my Syracuse days, but I did drink plenty of Keystone at one point in my life. Uh, those days are thankfully behind me. Um, some things that I have been drinking um, over the last week. Had a uh, brewery, Grey Monday. It was a Bourbon Barrel Aids Imperial Stout. Uh, with uh, hazelnuts. I think it comes in somewhere in the 20.3% range. It's a pretty good one. Um, I had Deadpan Pilsner from uh, Wayne's Brewing um, down in Temecula. So I had Mr. Pineapple. It's just a pineapple wheat from Santan Brewing over in Arizona. Um, and then I had a bunch of London Pride from uh, Fuller Turner and Smith, um, one of the biggest breweries in London, if not the biggest brewery in London. Um, I was at a British pub that did a lot of kind of cocktails, so I guess more of a British cocktail lounge um, over in West LA. And yeah, they all the cocktails were on the sweeter end. I'm not a big fan of that, so stuck with my uh, my go-to um, at, at establishments like that, which is London Pride. I will make one take for all the my fellow broke college students listening, if there are any. If you do need some good cheap beer, which is probably an oxymoron, definitely pay up for Bud Light Platinum rather than Bud Light. <laughs> Tastes much better. It goes great with anything. I think at Tops just the other day when I went to pick some up, it was about twelve bucks or fourteen bucks. Pretty good deal, and you can definitely taste the difference. I mean, that's one way to view it. I'll, I'll respect your right to say that one thing. I mean, it, it's alcohol for all. I know. I, when you're in college, I mean, I'm not sure if you were drinking IPAs, but I know I can't really go out and afford that. So usually Bud Light Platinum is my, I'll call it quote-unquote classy beer. I mean... If it makes you feel better, I am taking wine and beer appreciation. So second half of the semester, I'll know... Way more. That's where my 60k intuition's going. <laughs> I mean, I will say, 
again, I drank some of that in college, the beginning of college especially. Once I turned 21, I did not. And then kind of switched over to some better stuff. Um, I know if you, if you time your flips right at flip night, you can actually end up getting a lot of pretty good stuff. Uh, my go-to at the end of college was uh, Sam Adams Noble Pills when it first came out, which was very good. Uh, I was kind of a bitter Czech Pilsner. Um, and then I drank a lot of Magic Hat, admittedly, at the end of college. That was before like Magic Hat was absolutely everywhere when it was just kind of uh, Vermont, upstate New York, and a couple other spots. But I think the big key at flip night is to make sure you go when your friend who's, is uh, bartending. For some <laughs> reason, your luck just like just like that. You just can't lose. I don't know what it is, but whenever my friend's bartending, my luck is just on fire. I mean, I went eight for eleven one night. That's impressive. That was that, that was that was an entertaining night. Admittedly, back in uh, back in two thousand nine, it's been it's been quite a while. <laughs> anyway, um, we thought the Syracuse basketball game was going to be over by now, but it isn't because they went into overtime and because John Gillen is an animal and is knocking on the door of one of the 10 greatest scoring nights in Syracuse history. I don't think I would ever have predicted this, but then again, with this year's Syracuse basketball team, I don't think I can predict anything anymore. I don't think it's worth predicting anything anymore. This, this team wants to be unpredictable. They, they want you to know absolutely nothing about them on a night-to-night basis. And granted, I had a feeling that this was going to be a very tight game um, what I didn't expect was coming back from, you know, like, what was it, 13, 14 down? Um, yeah, late in the second half, too. Late in the second half, and then John Gillen going off for, like, one of the greatest scoring performances in school history. That's not, like, a thing that, that I had. I, I didn't check that bingo box. Nope. I don't think I'd ever expected him to get 41 points in a game. At all, one ever. Just a handful of... <laughs> Of, of 40 point nights in Syracuse history. Um, I know uh, our own Ben Siegel talked about it um, and, and the, what John Gillen has been able to do in ACC play and how important that's been um, to Syracuse's success. But nonetheless, um, that didn't include scoring like this. It included a modest scoring output with um, nice assist numbers and reducing turnovers. So, uh, this is pretty wild. Um, again, we're, we're going to keep talking recruiting a little bit until we get to the end of this game. Um, and then we can uh, just kind of hopefully, hopefully, you know, laugh our way to the end and hopefully a third straight win. We shall see. Or cry. It's also Syracuse basketball, so we never know. Interesting tweet from uh, Matt Schneidman. The last time Syracuse won away from home, it trailed by 16 in the second half to UVA, and tonight we also trailed by 16 in the second half. That is a very interesting stat. I knew that it had been a while since we went away from home, but I did not understand the symmetry of 16-point deficits. So that is fun. Um, But back to recruiting... 
I don't know, Ari. What do you got? I, uh, I feel like we talked about a lot of these guys. Um, is there I will say... Oh, go for I'm it. Sorry. Honestly, I will say another thing that surprised me was... I know we talked about it a little bit was... I'm not... I apologize because I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but... If I'll do Melifon Wu, the safety from Massachusetts. If he's listening, I apologize. I bought your name. Um, but... I was shocked that he actually stayed with Syracuse after he did confirm that he received a scholarship offer from Michigan during his visit last weekend. I just have always no disrespect to the Syracuse coaching staff or the Syracuse football, but Michigan and Syracuse are two completely different football pedigree. And Harbaugh is one of the greatest coaches in college football and one of the best recruiters. So the fact he turned down Michigan to stick with Syracuse is something Orange fans should applaud. I would concur. Yeah, we actually, it's a worthwhile point to make, is that you look at, you look at the, the offers that were put out, and you look at the offers that, that, that a lot of these uh, players got. I mean, some of them, I know I saw a couple of opinions sitting around on the internet that were like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's DeVito and a bunch of Mac guys and, and all that. And... That's not necessarily the case at all. Um, a lot of these guys also like kind of shut down their recruitment um, very early on after locking in with Syracuse, and that's worth considering as well. Um, but you know, just about every guy we brought in had at least one Power Five uh, offer, even if it was you know, quote unquote, just BC or just Wake um, or Iowa State or schools like that. Um, you know, most of these guys are P five level talents, which is a stark contrast from what we saw. Um, with the Scott Schaefer regime, where it was a lot... I mean, the guys who made... The guys who failed to make it to campus were definitely talented enough to play elsewhere, but the guys who did make it to campus, um, there's, a, there's a good portion of those guys who, uh, who just didn't seem to be able to cut the mustard against, um, you know, better competition. And maybe part of that, too, is, you know, Syracuse's step up from the Big East at the time. Uh, there were a lot of factors that really didn't help them be able to recruit to the level they needed to, but... At the same time, I think we're starting to see the sea change here when you look at, you know, guys like DeVito that had offers from A&M and Ole Miss and Washington State. Uh, you know, Ravian Pierce had offers from LSU and he flipped from Mississippi State. Uh, Florida and Tennessee and OK State were interested in him the first time around. Um, again, you see BC's name on here a lot. Uh, Rutgers is on here a lot. I know, uh, I know Kingsley Jonathan and uh, Nadarius Fagan both had... Um, a decent amount of looks from SEC schools. I know, um, you know, Fagan in particular, Alabama, LSU, Louisville, USC, um, huge names on there. And, and that's when you start to say, you know, the stars matter, yes, and I think that, that, that they're, they're, there's definitely something to them, but at the same time, like, you don't see those schools, especially Alabama, offering guys who are three stars unless they think they're really four stars. Um, and and that's, that's worth taking into consideration with, with him and, and a lot of these other guys as, you know, we, we see, I mean, Baber said that this was really the building block to the program. And, and I think he's right. You know, 2016, you really had to pull together um, a class that fit the program, but also was, you know, gettable. I mean, Babers was showing up very late in the game. Uh, luckily, he had his recruiting staff with him, though, and from Bowling Green, he was able to quickly reestablish contacts. Um, with guys that, that were out of their reach when they were Mac uh, coaching staff, and he was able to bring in what was a solid group in, in the 60-ish range. 
Uh, this group's probably going to finish in the 50 to 55 range. That's still fine, though, when, you know, again, look at, look at the fit of all these players, and it's definitely much greater um, than, than the fit of a, a large portion of the roster is right now for the system that they run on both sides of the ball. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think both of us, we rank this uh, B-plus in terms of recruiting class. And honestly, after snagging McKelty Williams, I'd probably bump it up to A-minus. Not only did he get solid recruits, I mean, every single player has at least a three-star rating. But he also ventured down, dove into new fields, taking risks on high-upside guys, like two guys, two players from Canada, a lot number of Juco prospects, players like Alan Stritzinger or Kadeem Trotter, who were getting more highly rated going into their junior season and then kind of saw their stocks dip a little bit because they both suffered uh, respective injuries. There's a lot of high upside players, and all these high upside players fit his system. I would, if Dino stays, and you never know with college football coaches leave all the time, but if he stays, this is def- these past two recruiting classes are definitely building blocks Syracuse can use to eventually get to that 7-8 and eight win type of seasons year in and year out in a couple of years. For me personally, I expect by 2019, I could definitely see that Syracuse team at least, at the very worst, going 6-6 six and six and guaranteeing a bowl game. Yeah, I buy it. I, I think the schedule's got to cooperate a little bit, but I, I do buy it. I'm, I'm very optimistic on this team. I'm very optimistic on this staff. We just have to hope that the, the win-loss results start coming with the change in quality before whether it's Babers or other people on the staff, see more enticing offers elsewhere. Um, and that's the one thing that um, it seems is lost on on those creating the schedule and those cheering on a harder schedule is that eventually if you feel like the odds are stacked against you as a coaching staff um, in terms of results, you you do start to look elsewhere. And that goes for any life situation. You know, if, you, if you're in a job and you feel like, you know, it's a dead end and there's no way for you to move up and, and that – you know, your, your your boss is, is telling you that, you know, you don't, your boss is putting you in situations where you can't succeed, things like that. Like, yeah, that, that's usually when people change jobs or move. And, and I just hope Syracuse doesn't get to that point. Luckily, because they don't, haven't scheduled much um, in, sure. the, in the near future, um, there's plenty of time to, to fix it, which, uh, again, thankful for that as much as I hate the fact that we aren't scheduled very well. It'll be interesting to see uh, what Wildhack does in terms of scheduling. I mean, you have to assume Bay's going to push him not to be like LSU, but... Yeah, let's let's not do that. Who knows? Although the problem is we're, we're pretty well scheduled in terms of P5 teams um, going forward. I know we have Maryland in 2019. We've Notre Dame again on the road in 2018. Um, we've got Wisconsin in Madison in 2020. Wisconsin back at the Dome in 2021. And then I think Notre Dame in 2023 at the Dome. That sound right? Hopefully Syracuse is at least in spitting distance of Wisconsin and Notre Dame by the time they actually get around to playing them. Yeah, that'd be nice. Let's let's hope for that. Um, okay, that's enough of National Signing Day. I think we can divert a little bit to college basketball now that uh, Syracuse has finished its enormous comeback. Uh, they were down 16 to NC State Wolfpack on the road in Raleigh in the building known as PNC Arena, which, at least for hockey, was a terrible venue when I was there. Um, but yeah, 
They beat NC State. They won for the first time on the road, or at least away from the Carrier Dome, since the uh, Elite Eight last year against Virginia. So it has been nearly a year. That should be jarring, but it's not jarring that we won. Um, Ari, were you watching, or were you just kind of following along as we were uh, kind of chatting it up here on the podcast? I was uh, watching for the most part, and had a deal away and get some National Signing Day info up and ready for the podcast, so I wasn't able to catch about most half of the second half. I think by the time they were down by like 16-14, I had a veer away. I also thought at that point the game was over, but as lately with this team, anything can pretty much happen. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, this team's taken on like that wacky kind of character that last year's team took on. Where anything can happen, I don't want to start making comparisons to Final Four team and this team that's going to be lucky to make the tournament, but at the same time, like, Syracuse is 14-9, they're 6-4 and four in conference, and if they hadn't screwed up a couple things in non-conference play, they would be firmly in. And as a Syracuse fan, that should piss you off quite a bit, because now, they, no matter what happens the rest of conference play, it's pretty much you... I mean, what do they have? They have eight games left. I think you need to go 5-3. and three. I think you and you probably still need to win a, at least one more good win on the road. Right. That's yep. There's they, I mean they they still have those games. That's a good thing. They still have a game at Pitt and they still have a game at Louisville. And they win they one of those games against ranked teams, which is right, not exactly. like a typical, which is not a typical situation they would be in at all. I feel like every year we have more you know ranked teams on the road down the stretch than we do at home, but seems the opposite this year, which is advantageous. I mean, it doesn't really give us a chance to strengthen our RPI numbers. RPI does, strengthen, does look at road record more, but other advanced metrics see this team as rising, which to me is, is interesting. It's compelling. And the fact that we've won three straight and now go into a game where Jim Beheim could potentially win his 1,000th game on Saturday at the Dome, I mean, that's going to be emotional. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be narrative-filled, obviously. UVA was a team that we should have lost to in the lead eight and we didn't um so yeah I, I think that you know su just when you think they're dead they, they suddenly they somehow find a way to be compelling and i hit on this in the monday article i wrote about you know we've, we've seen this florida state win before um what they do with it afterwards really kind of defines what it is uh based on what i saw tonight so far so good i mean again saturday will be a much better barometer of what this team can really do but being able to come back from from that um, and, and the effort that you saw from, and, and again, this is, we can talk about this a little bit, but anyone who's still sitting around talking, you know, shit about Andrew White and John Gillen, like, look at the lines that those two guys put up tonight and then tell me how they shouldn't be on this team any, at all. I mean, those two guys paired with Tyler Lydon, that's a strong group of three players. I mean, tonight, Syracuse scored 100 points. Lydon, White, and Gillen scored 86 of those 100 points. Those three players alone were only seven points away from beating NC State by themselves. I mean, they got basically nothing from Tyus Battle or Torian Thompson, and Roberson has has yeah, gone back to the offensive game today, and Frank Howard has just been a complete and utter mess lately. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to see much from Howard or Roberson the rest of the season. I think the five that we... We see out there as the starters every night are, are the starters, and you know Beheim's fine to, to to run this team to the ground to play them 
you know, 39 minutes a game if it means a better shot to win. And so far we've seen that uh, since the transition to this lineup, I think it was about three or four games ago, uh, we've looked much better. Uh, you know, obviously there's still some issues here and there. A team with a better center should be able to manhandle Leiden a little bit. Um, and I think that Bayheim understood in the Florida State game the ability to adjust that uh, lineup where necessary to deal with size. But um, this group gets it. Um, you know, it wasn't for lack of ability or trying either that you know, Torian Thompson and Ty's battle really weren't, like, in the game. I mean, they were, but as far as, like, the, the box score, um, which means some foul trouble for, for Thompson and, you know, just less shots than, than the other guys. I mean, you look at... When Gillum's 10 for 13 from from uh, the floor and he's 9 for 10 from 3, I mean, that's insane. Just feed the guy the ball. There's no point in, in, in giving it to anybody else. Um, you know, when, when White is 11 for 19 from the floor and scores 28 points, again, why give it to anybody else? Lydon's still got his, his points and then some. Like th- This is a team that if they can rely on those three guys, I mean, running an offense and running a team around one guy is stupid and even two. Uh, is not exactly sustainable. If you have three guys who can score at least 15 points a night, now suddenly you're looking at a team that that can test a lot of other programs, you know, in the NCAA, in the ACC. Because, um, again, if, if we can go 5-3 and three down the stretch here and win the right games in that process, now you're 11-7 and seven in league play. Um, you know, now you're 19-12 and 12 overall. And, so, like... And, and those, I mean, the St. John's loss sucks, and the BC loss does too. But you, you look at the rest of you look at the rest of the resume, and th- there are some compelling points to be made about, you know, maybe we are a bubble team. It's definitely an interesting conversation. I mean, it's a conversation I don't think either of us would have imagined we'd be having just one week ago. Oh hell no! After that Notre Dame loss, when this was a team that. I didn't at that point. I would have been. Sh- I wouldn't have been op- open to them making the NIT. Like I did not think they wouldn't have even made the NIT, let alone the NCAA tournament. I mean, they had that thirty-three point loss to St. John's, losing to UConn, losing to BC. No quality wins. No wins away from the Carrier Dome. That team looked like one of the biggest wastes of talent I've ever seen in the Jim Beheim era. And now we're talking like they're going to make the NCAA tournament. It's an incredible turnaround. I just, I just wasn't expecting this like at all. I don't think anyone was. Like, wasn't expecting this team to do this. Like, and the, like once they started failing, then I was expecting them to stay failing because that's kind of how it works. Like now I'm starting to wonder because like I'm going to be in New York in March. I'm going to be in New York around the Sweet 16, Elite Eight. Now like those those creepy thoughts are starting to to, to show back up of like. You know, is SU is SU good enough to get past to get in? And then, if they are, are they good enough to get past anybody? The main question is: Are they are they the team that's finally living up to that talent and that preseason hype when everyone is picking them to go to the Sweet Sixteen, Elite Eight, or back to the Final Four? Or are they just an inconsistent team that's winning, having a couple nice wins now, but is eventually going to let us down again? Honestly, I, I still don't know. I have no idea what my prediction is going to be for, for Virginia. I don't know what I'm going to predict for Clemson on the road. I honestly have no clue. I wouldn't be shocked either way at this point. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the, the blessing and curse with this team. I wouldn't be shocked either way. 
there isn't one game left. I mean, maybe the Louisville games, but there isn't one game left that I'm sitting there going, okay, we're either out of or we're winning, like going away. And, and that is both, you know, beautiful and frustrating at the same time. I mean, it's just incredible how each night they can just utterly shock you. I mean, John Gillen averaged less than 10 points per game, and he just scored more than 40, and the Orange scored 100 points. I don't think there's not a single person in the world that predicted that was even in the realm of a possibility, and yet it just happened. So I I have no idea. I think that's just the saying for this entire Syracuse season. I have absolutely no idea. That is uh, that is it in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> all right, I think I think we're good here for the most part. I, I feel like we we did cover a lot of signing day. Obviously, this basketball team is a lot more that we can talk about on the blog itself. Um, so I'll leave that to the written word and a lot of our basketball writers. Um, but do appreciate you taking the time out today. Um, I know it was not the normal schedule, but nonetheless, it was great to uh, great to get your insights on signing day and your help all day today. Thank you. It was great to come back on. Thanks for having me. Of course. And everyone, uh, you've been listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk on any other service you may be able to have access to us, and uh, go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299, and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.